This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Bias is a prejudice in favor of or against one thing, person, or group, and it's not limited to just race or ethnicity. Unconscious biases are stereotypes about certain groups of people from outside our conscious awareness. Many times these biases can result in an inaccurate perception or judgment of a particular group. In healthcare, when we have biases, it can result in inadequate provision of medical care. We all have some degree of unconscious bias which may be affecting the care we provide our patients. Today we're joined by Dr. Sharon Hayes, a cardiologist and professor of cardiovascular medicine, as well as Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Mayo Clinic. Our topic for discussion today is unconscious bias. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. This is really kind of a hot topic and one that's highly relevant to our practice. It is. Well, let's start with the definition. How would you define unconscious bias? So unconscious bias or implicit bias, those are really synonyms, is those reactions, often snap judgments, about individuals or things or situations that happen automatically and without us having to really think about them very much. So think about it as our brain on automatic. We physicians and scientists often don't like to think that our brain might be doing something that we don't have to actually think about, but that's the case. And I assume the term unconscious bias means that we're not aware that we have these, unlike, I assume, conscious bias. So obviously conscious bias, we know it when we see it. You, you have a stated or felt um, objection to cat people or whatever. You can have a conscious bias. This implicit or unconscious bias um, does mean that it is expressed without our foreknowledge. And actually it can be exactly the opposite of how we feel consciously. So we feel like we are fair. We want to provide the most equitable care to all of our patients or treat all people the same. But in actuality, some of these automaticities, which happen in our brain very quickly, don't allow us to do so. Okay. Well, when we think of bias, I think we often think of bias against a particular race. But what other groups have had evidence of unconscious bias? So all of us have unconscious bias about something, and it could be positive or negative. And we do think about it. It's race or gender, somehow that might be affected care. I like to steer us away when we're teaching about unconscious bias that it can affect all of us. For instance, people with obesity in healthcare and in real life can have unconscious bias. They've been shown to be provided fewer preventive services. People with disabilities, women who are um, using a wheelchair, so have mobility, are less likely to get cervical cancer screening because there's this unconscious bias that they may not be sexually active. And a particularly relevant that brings us all in is since we all aspire to live a long life, there's a very strong healthcare bias against elderly um, in both treating elderly women in a fairly patronizing way, perhaps not thinking that they are capable, 
Um, so those are some of the biases that go beyond race and gender and people with an accent that it does help us all make this relevant to our practice because I'm sure we're all taking care of obese people and elderly people and women and minorities. Is it known how we develop unconscious bias? So think about um, uh, Dr. Mazarin Banaji, who is the Harvard researcher who really has, has done uh, much of this, this work and leads the Harvard Implicit Project, um, can be quoted as, think about unconscious bias is the thumbprint of our culture on our mind. So it is built over years uh, and a lifetime of experiences, our culture, um, what we see on TV, all of those unconscious and conscious inputs result in our unconscious biases. It seems like as healthcare providers, we need to bring the unconscious part of bias into our consciousness. So how do we know if we have unconscious bias? How, how do we evaluate ourselves? So that's a great question. I think the first, the first assumption is that we have them. So if we all start there, and so it is our effort to discover what ours are, and then the next step to think about ways that we can mitigate their effects on our patient care. So using the uh, Project Implicit, you can search for it. It is a, um, a, a way that has been devised by Dr. Banaji and her team to um, be able to test yourself. So you can look at uh, race or gender or women in the workforce or a variety of different tests where it can test your reaction time based on positive and negative things. So that's a start. I recommend that people do two or three of them. They take about five minutes a piece and then reflect on how you feel about having um, uncovered your biases. Uh, so that's one way, but I think you don't even have to do these tests. You have to assume that you probably have them. We've been talking about unconscious bias in the healthcare field. How about other areas of society? Where does unconscious bias fit in to um, other parts of, uh, of our country? Well, it can play itself out in who we hang out with, um, in who we are friends with or who we interact with on social media. It can play out in law enforcement um, where we may make police who are in a high stress um, uh, position have to make snap judgments and sometimes these snap judgments may be based on other experiences. So in virtually every um, area, these unconscious biases may play out, but in healthcare, the stakes are particularly high. Yeah, yeah. So let's say we identify the fact that we do have some biases. Um, what steps should we take then to uh, act on those? Well, I think we start with, um, and this doesn't give us get us off the hook individually, but there's really no evidence that any intervention will make these biases go away because they're automatic. They're deeply seated. So what we need to do is, one, identify them and then put into place um, ways that we can limit the effect. So if I have a bias against a certain group, say obese people, I had a colleague and the way she, uh, and she knew she had an obesity unconscious bias. So she developed a yellow light system where basically she'd look at the BMI of the patient before she walked into the exam room 
And if it was high, she made double sure that she followed all guidelines and everything to make sure that that patient had appropriate care. So that's one way. So you set up systems, checklists, so you don't miss anything. In cardiology, we have an awful lot of guidelines and checklists, which can help us. Other ways are taking care of yourself. So when we are most likely to have our unconscious biases activated and acted upon is when we are tired, stressed, or burnt out. Now that pretty much describes everyone in healthcare these days. Pretty much. So taking care of oneself, getting adequate sleep, and making sure that you have um, things in your practice, that can help. And I think finally having organizations help with processes, because that's probably just like the physician I said who had a checklist. If women are less likely to get prescribed aspirin after myocardial infarction or be referred to cardiac rehab, making sure at the end of that hospitalization there is a checklist to make sure that every patient um, gets at least considered for that is one way to get over that perhaps unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Well, in the healthcare field, this is somewhat of a new topic. Um, I don't recall being taught this in uh, medical school or residency. Are we teaching it now, and should we start teaching it if we're not? So we are teaching it. Um, many of our medical students and residents have had um, have had education on this as undergraduates, so they are coming into it more educated than we who have been in the field for a while. Um, it is part of uh, the Mayo Medical School curriculum. Um, it's embedded throughout, and plus a special session. Um, so increasingly it is because it is so linked to health disparities and addressing social determinants of health of our patients. So once you link unconscious bias to poor outcomes in our patients, it becomes relevant for all of us. So it behooves us all to figure it out and help our organizations or our practices to help us mitigate this effect on our patients. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that our students are coming into medical school with these biases, or do we give them to them, or do they develop them as uh, they train? Um, They come with their own biases about people, things, and social situations because, um, uh, but they develop, I think, some new ones in healthcare Mm -hmm. because of the environment that they're in. One thing that um, had been hopeful, there was a thought that maybe some of particularly race and ethnicity biases may be diminished in the younger populations because they've been exposed to a more diverse uh, upbringing. And unfortunately, the testing would not suggest that our younger generation has any less of these unconscious biases um, than those of us who are more mature or more senior. And they may be a bit different and therefore, we need to continue to be vigilant. Okay. Are the students surprised to hear of this topic? Or are they, you said they've already had some training, so they've... Uh... I, I think a couple of things on the students, my, because um, I, I, I gave a, a three-hour session to our first-year medical students. It was in their second week of medical school this, mm-hmm. um, this year, um, and we've woven it in their topic uh, throughout. On the one hand, they're probably more educated about the concept, but I think that they are just as, they hold just as strong beliefs that they're better than that, that they probably don't have those biases. So it's actually a very difficult thing to accept. And Mm -hmm. I think some conversation about, so you do do one of the project implicit and you find out, you know what, 
I believe everyone's equal, but I just came out with this test where right. I am biased against black people. Mm -hmm. And 70% of white people come out as biased against black people on these um, tests. It makes one feel sad, ashamed, angry, or disbelieving. There's so many emotions that are unhelpful. And there's been a fair amount written on how do we get beyond that and say, okay, this is who I am. This is what my culture has brought to me. What can I do to move forward? Sure. Well, we all want to feel that we are unbiased and we're providing care the same to everybody. But I think the literature shows that's not really true. Exactly. And it is uh, difficult for us to accept that fact. Join Dr. Hayes and colleagues at the Equity and Inclusion in Healthcare conference here in Rochester, Minnesota, October 25th and 26th in 2019. Attend skill development workshops on processes that help increase recognition and reduce the impact of bias. You can also examine your own knowledge and beliefs on diversity and inclusion. Gain insights into the rationale and importance of creating a culture of inclusion for employees and patients. All right, well, let's turn this situation around a bit. Um, how do we deal with patients who show bias, a bias towards color, race? Uh, let's say we have a patient who says, I don't want to have a physician who's African-American. How do we deal with that? Great question. Um, and increasingly frequent um, in our experience here at Mayo Clinic and in informal polls with my colleagues at other, um, at other hospitals and health systems. So I think there really has to be an approach because uh, at Mayo we put together a policy uh, last year, well, yeah, in late 2017, to address um, not just these requests, like I don't want to see or I only want to see um, a type of provider, but also the overt bias, name-calling, harassing, discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, part of that was because of an uptick in that behavior um, for whatever reason, more requests uh, going, and patients, if the, those requests were denied, going down to our Office of Patient Experience and complaining. I said I only wanted white people taking care of me. They didn't let me do that, so they go down and complain. And that set up a, a difficult dialogue because we are an organization that the needs of the patient come first. So well, how we reflect it is the needs of the patient come first, but not necessarily all their wants. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important dis, um, discernment. So our, and we know that in a national survey, six of 10 healthcare providers, physicians, have experienced someone asking uh, some type of bias based on a personal characteristic. Mm -hmm. Number one is gender, youth, um, race, ethnicity, accent. So there's a variety of factors that, um, that come up. So we at Mayo Clinic took the stance that we needed a policy because we have about 20 policies to protect our patients and nothing. We had nothing on the books to protect our providers or give guidance to behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you came in and said, I don't want an African-American physician, we would, we have some scripts, but basically you would be denied that for an outpa outpatient uh, appointment unless it would impact your care. There obviously are exceptions. 
um, for gender of provider and, and um, cultural issues, uh, cognitive impairment. But I think as healthcare organizations, we need to protect our employees so that they are not experiencing a hostile workplace. Mm -hmm. So that was one of our principles is if I am a woman and uh, provider, I'm a women nurse or doctor, and I've got patients who are calling for appointments say I only want a man surgeon um, is my experience. And if my employer are going to support me in this, if they are letting that behavior, so we recognize as an employer. The other is to our trainees. One of the toughest concepts was women asking for a female provider. Right. I was going to ask that next. Yeah. Well, that, that was the okay. one that our committee spent a whole lot of time because imagine. whenever we would present this to leadership, they would say, well, should my wife be able to get a woman OB-GYN if she wants it? And theoretically, since most obstetrics gynecologist specialists are women, it probably the, in all odds are. But we said, would it be okay for a man to come in and ask for the same thing? One, um, we don't think of that as uh, as equivalent. Mm -hmm. um, two, um, we have an obligation to our trainees as an academic medical center. So if we said yes to that request every time, how are our male trainees and OB/GYN going to get? adequately trained, Mayo trained for their future careers. And um, so we, we decided that that would not be an automatic um, uh, acceptance. Mm -hmm. As I look at our practice, I know my female colleagues are seeing many more female patients than I see in my practice. So I don't know if this is just by chance or I suspect it is not. I suspect it is not, um, and in fact, this move was very much supported by our female colleagues who feel that they disproportionately see um, some of these more challenging cases and because we've just, we've just said yes, and so we just say no with an asterisk now because mm -hmm. there are exceptions, um, and clearly uh, a woman who has had trauma uh, related to uh, male providers or just you know, a rape victim. There's many exceptions, but for the woman who just prefers, um, we will explain that we don't make those. We'll make an accommodation um, on occasion. But in general, that's that was the tough one. Yeah. I will say we've gotten very little pushback from that. We have a reporting mechanism that we ask all of the appointment coordinators to report those requests as well as the more egregious acts. What I can tell you is for our minority and, um, and trainees and our emergency department um, staff, now that we have this policy and procedure in place, they feel very much more supported by their organization. I, um, I can tell you that I've had um, colleagues who are people of color who have had patients tell them, I won't see you, and they haven't been backed up because there was no policy, and they felt that Mayo didn't step up and they're feeling better about this well i think it's also important for our competence too if if i have a practice of all males uh, i'm not going to be as good about handling female medical issues and same with females and males so i, I think it's important to have at least a gender balanced practice uh, absolutely and and i think that it, 
Another scenario that we discussed, and, and this was not even a theoretical one, so if the only person on duty is a person of color or a woman and that's what the patient doesn't want, or the only person qualified to do that particular procedure, um, it actually could be bad for their health. Um, uh, for a period of time, the only person, this is a number of years ago, the only person who was certified to do robotic surgery for prostate cancer was a female urologist. Mm -hmm. So if you had a man come in and say, I only want a man, mm -hmm. they would have had an open radical prostatectomy. So uh, again, I think that you have to look down the road for these scenarios and realize what we were doing before by sort of exceeding to patients may not have been best for patients either. Yeah. Well, I've certainly seen age bias. I recall when I first started practice, I would get an occasional patient who requested an older physician and now I'm getting patients who are requesting a younger physician. And I think there was this little window of maybe yeah. 10 years where I was the perfect age. The perfect age. But uh, that's gone. <laughs> well, Sharon, how does Mayo handle this issue? Uh, a patient who makes an inappropriate request regarding their care. Um, what do we do with that request? So we've tried to be proactive. So one of the things that we've done is we've put on our patient-facing websites where they go to make appointments or learn about Mayo Clinic some frequently asked questions, a statement that we don't um, allow people to pick their provider based on these characteristics. So patients may miss that. They may not read it, but it's, it's there if they do. So they um, can't say that um, Mayo doesn't do that. We've provided scripts and talking points for our appointment coordinators, for our nursing staff, for inpatient and outpatient, as well as training in empathic communication so that they can get at the cause of this particular request because sometimes the request will be granted if it is due to past trauma or other things. So training our staff to be, be better able to um, understand and then respond and say no and escalate it to supervisors. And then we've also set up a reporting structure. And it's not just for reporting those egregious, racist, sexist um, type things, but actually so we can get keep some type of track of how frequently these requests are being made. So we've made it pretty easy for reporting. Uh, that was a gap because we weren't keeping track of that and being able to, um, uh, to, to quantify it to see if this was even a problem. So that's been helpful. We review those, so if there are areas that perhaps need additional, their staff need additional training or they're not handling the situations appropriately, uh, we have a, uh, a committee that actually reviews these um, on the back end. And we have identified a few areas where the judgment at the time may have not been the one that was consistent with the policy, and then it's an opportunity to go into that work unit and talk about how, build their skills, for mm -hmm. instance. We also are developing, particularly for our learners, because you talked about the age bias, so many of, um, we've all, you know, at an academic medical center, um, I only want the consultants taking care of me, I only want the staff physician or the faculty. Well. Honestly, they don't want me putting an IV in as a first pass probably anymore. So sometimes, and we all have that script that we have, but helping our faculty better deal with um, how to support the resident or the medical student who we have witnessed or has shared with us 
and experience related to patient bias, so outright patient bias, to both support them in whatever way is most appropriate. And one key issue here if a, is they get to choose whether they continue to take care of that patient. So one mistake that we make is a patient says, I don't want that nurse or doctor or student to take care of me because they're black or their accent. I only want an American. And we talk through that. And we should let then that student or nurse or whoever make a decision on whether they want to continue to care for that patient. Because immediately taking them off the case actually um, doubles down on the harm and the shame that that individual feels. They somehow feel that they may be at risk. Mm -hmm. They may choose not to care for the patient. That may be the best for them. But sometimes um, developing that relationship is one little advance for that patient about the competency of a young or a black or a person with an accent in their care at Mayo Clinic. You know, a challenging situation that I've come across, I was, I've been trained in geriatrics and I've taken care of a lot of patients with dementia and Dementing illnesses are often involving the frontal lobe where our inhibitions mm -hmm. generate. And uh, I see elderly demented patients make comments that are they, they probably wouldn't have made 10 years ago because they now have no inhibitions. How do you deal with that? Because you know it's inappropriate, but to the patient's mind, they'll, you probably can't reason with them. So I think particularly if, if it's just you and a patient, then obviously that's not going to be an issue because you know that patient and you know that it's a disinhibition. I think the most important thing you can do is if they say something about the medical student who's in the room with you uh, about that, even if you don't say something at that time, is that you have a conversation with a resident outside the room or after over coffee about the pathophysiologic reason that patient may have said it. I mean, they may be a closet racist, but, uh, but to acknowledge and support that individual. And where appropriate, if the patient isn't too demented, to, to interject in the moment. Um, the biggest mistake we get is to say, oh, he was just a demented old man. That's why he said it. It's OK. Don't worry about it to the person, uh, the target. Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of does add to the injury. So whatever you can say sure. about not making excuses for the patient, but maybe even talking about the pathophysiology there. Yeah, and you've got two individuals. You may not be able to change the patient, but you can certainly help the student or the resident when they hear this. Exactly. Yeah, very good. We've been talking about patient bias and misconduct and unconscious bias with Dr. Sharon Hayes, a Mayo Clinic physician in cardiology and director of diversity and inclusion. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Daryl. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.